1: You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy.
2: Hello, hello, lovely audience, listeners, viewers, people in cyberspace. Uh, Welcome to the Virtual Skylight Books. We're here tonight to celebrate a new anthology, Speculative Los Angeles. Um, We have the editor, Denise Hamilton, and contributors Alex Espinoza and Amy Bender here with us today. You'll see them down there as little picture-in-picture. We're so glad you could join us here on Crowdcast. This is our new temporary home during the pandemic. If you haven't uh, joined one of our Crowdcast events before, let me give you a quick tour. My name's Maddie. I'll be your guide this evening. I'll be your your host, your MC. Um, So Crowdcast, it's a lot like Zoom webinar. You're going to be able to see and hear us, but you won't have your own audio or video. The best way to communicate with us during the event is via the chat on the right side of your screen. Um, You can also ask any questions that you have for our readers tonight using the Ask a Question feature down at the bottom of your screen there. Um, That'll collect the questions in a nice, tidy queue for me so they don't get lost in the chat. Um, We also have a nice shiny green button here that says order event books so if you click that button it's going to take you right over to the skylight books website. Um, Skylight books we are an independent bookstore located in Los Angeles conveniently enough to you, Um, wherever you are we will send you books. Um, And we are open right now for in store shopping 11am to 7pm weekdays and 10am to 8pm weekends. All right, so uh, one more thing I want to point out is the donate button. If you want to support our events programming directly, you can do so there. Uh, we really appreciate all of you showing up for us in this time. Um, you know, It's rough out there. And uh, you got to build the community you want to see. That's, that's where we're at in the 2020s. So um, yeah, thank you for continuing to show up for us and for authors, um, and especially for local authors um, writing about LA. We're really excited um, about this new anthology. Uh, one more thing I should say is if you like our events, you can follow our Crowdcast page and you'll get updates about all of our new ones. We've got a great schedule coming up in March. Um, tomorrow we have a fantastic comics event with Jason Liu, Chips Zdarsky, uh, and they're going to be in conversation with Paul F. Tompkins about their new comic Afterlift. I'm really stoked about that one. Should be a good time. So we hope to see you there as well. Uh, all right. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce our guest today. All right, Edgar Award finalist Denise Hamilton is the author of seven crime novels and the editor of the best-selling anthology Los Angeles Noir, which includes the Edgar Award winning short story The Golden Gopher by Susan Strait, who's also a friend of Skylight. Uh, She's also the editor of Los Angeles Noir 2, The Classics. She is a former Los Angeles Times journalist, a Fulbright scholar, a noir and sci-fi fantasy geek, and a proud LA native who refuses to speak only in English. She is the editor of Speculative Los Angeles. All right, next up, we have Alex Espinoza. Alex Espinoza was born in Tijuana, Mexico, to parents from the state of Michoacan and raised in suburban Los Angeles. In high school and afterwards, he worked a series of retail jobs, selling everything from eggs and milk to used appliances, custom furniture, rock t-shirts, and body jewelry. Wow, so many lives. Uh, After graduating from the University of California, Riverside, he went on to earn an MFA from UC Irvine's program in writing. His first novel, Stillwater Saints, was published by Random House in 2007 and was named a Barnes & Noble Discover, great new writer's selection. The book was released simultaneously in Spanish under the title Los Santos de Aguamanza, California, translated by Liliana Valenzuela. His second novel, The Five Acts of Diego León, was also published by Random House in March 2013. His newest book is Cruising, an Intimate History of a Radical Pastime, which was published by the Unnamed Press in June of 2019. Alex is the Tomás Rivera Endowed Chair of Creative Writing at UC Riverside. All right, and last but certainly not least, we have Amy Bender. Amy Bender is the author of six books The Girl in the Flammable Skirt, which was a New York Times notable book, An Invisible Sign of My Own, which was an LA Times pick of the year, Willful Creatures, which was nominated by The Believer as one of the best books of the year, The Particular Sadness of Lemon Cake, which is just one of my favorite titles ever, which won the SCIBA Award for Best Fiction and an Alex Award, The Color Master, a New York Times notable book for 2013, and her latest novel, The Butterfly Lampshade, which came out in July 2020. Um, We still have signed copies of this, by the way, if you want to order one. Uh, It was long listed for the Penn Jean Stein Award. Her books have been translated into 16 languages. Her short fiction has been published in Granta, GQ, Harper's, Tin House, McSweeney's, The Paris Review, and more, as well as heard on PRI's This American Life and Selected Shorts. She lives in Los Angeles with her family and teaches creative writing at USC. Denise, Alex, and Amy Welcome to the program. So glad to have you here. This is not a program, but I'm glad to have you. (laughs) We bring you up here.
0: Thank you,
2: man. Yay!
0: Yay.
3: We appreciate Skylight very much. Yeah, yeah, so um, I edited two volumes of Los Angeles Noir, and then I was thinking, okay, what, what else can I do with Akashic? And so I've always been interested in dark fantasy and sci-fi. And I thought, maybe I should propose an anthology of that. But then I thought, well, someone's done it before, right? Because this is L.A. This is the capital of fantasy land and artifice and unreality. But I looked around and no one had. So um, Akashic liked the idea. And so here we are. Um, I just uh, you know, came up with 14 writers who... Who's writing about Los Angeles? I love and um, Amy. I guess I'll start with you by asking. uh, You know, speculative fiction is is a genre that you live in and swim in. Um, You know, most of your work is in that realm. I don't know if you would call it speculative, or you have what what term do you use
4: for? Did you say? Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean I like speculative. I think it's one of the more encompassing words of the options, you know. So I've heard a lot of them. Fabulism is good too, but speculative is larger. So
3: yeah. yeah. Well, and um, so I'm very curious. What what the, the only thing I, I did uh, I told uh, the different authors was pick a neighborhood or a monument or an something in LA, a physical place that that strikes you or haunts you and um and Right about that, um, and so why did you pick uh, the tar pits? And and maybe explain a little bit about the tar pits first for people who are not from LA and sure have no idea what this means.
4: Um, sure, and and it, thank you. It's such a pleasure to be in the book, and and I love the stories in it, and to be in there with your story and Alex's story. It's just I really I'm really pleased. So thank you, and. And it was really fun when you sent the email and you said, pick a neighborhood, because I, about eight years ago, moved right near the tar pits and had twins and then would take them on a walk through like daily during their nap with the stroller through. It's called Hancock Park. It's not the sort of bigger, fancy Hancock Park with the houses, but it's literally that little park with the Tar Pits Museum in LACMA mm-hmm. has a bust of John Hancock. Um, who. Like, it's different, I think, than the, you know, the the signature, right? And
3: um, And so did did you always find the tar pits to be kind of eerie? Because I certainly did as a kid. There was something otherworldly about them, like a portal into the far past.
4: Well, exactly. (laughs) I mean, I think I would walk by them every day. And it was so interesting to just be exposed to them again and again, because I saw them as a child. I grew up in L.A. and I remember doing like field trips to the tar pits because they really are a portal to the past completely and pulling up the tar and the heavy one and the less heavy one but um but I also felt really taken by the sculpture choice which is what I ended up writing about because it's such and I think I had felt it before but even just to walk by it daily and feel like what a traumatic what a traumatic choice to have this this drowning woolly mammoth as like the illustration of what the tar was like for animals so, um, so I just would think about it repeatedly. And I also just felt like I spent a lot of time just kind of in the milieu of that park. And so it was really, it was really fun to kind of get to spend some time thinking about it and dig into the history a little bit about who sculpted it and try to find info on him which was very hard to find. So I enjoyed that a lot.
3: The um, the tar pits also, they're they're creepy because they literally are bubbling pools of tar um, that animals used to drown in because after a rain, they would, uh, there would be a film of water over it. So it just looked like a watering hole and the ancient um, you know, woolly mammoths and rhinos and saber tooth cats and everything would go and drink and then they would get caught in the tar and they would sink and die and struggle. And um, but I think they found some human remains in there as well. And so mm. now, of course, it's all um, fenced off so that nobody can get in. But the little girl in your story is a very interested uh, in those tar pits and in the, fi- the giant fiberglass representations, sculptures of the um, animals that are struggling in the tar. And um, the animal, uh, it's an elephant, it's a woolly mammoth family. And the family starts moving around and shifting and, and some of them disappear. And one of them shows up in another part of town and there's like whispers in in the grass of the park and there's just a very eerie feeling to it. And yet the little girl seems to not find it odd at all. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, it seems like, you know, the, the logic, uh, adult logic and child logic are completely different things. And one is kind of a, a dream state that that is very uh, speculative uh, just to, because they haven't learned to
4: live in reality yet. I mean, were you, is that something that you were trying to explore? that maybe they haven't learned to live in reality or they haven't tested over reality with a certain sort of, you know, adult lens. Right, they, they uh, haven't
3: been like tortured right. <laughs> into, like there's only one reality and you have to Yeah,
4: and I think it's, I mean, I think there is something just as you're saying about walking by this tar and knowing it's been there for millennia and that it's the same tar and that really to imagine that there were these bully mammoths walking around these same grounds like already we're in speculative land that's so incredible and it's actually true. You know, like it's just I don't know of any other city that has a tar pit as like a, a you know a, a tourist destination. It's just so odd and um, and so wonderful, I think. So but I guess I wanted to think about I felt like when I really thought about this sculpture and the artist who had put it together, it was so much about grief to have uh, you have one parent you know, watching the other parent in the tar and they can't rescue them because they'll die. And then you have a child watching and that for this child, something about it was actually truthful to her experience because she has a mother who's gone. And so it felt comforting in the way that that art is comforting when it reflects something true. But, but I guess I wanted to have her be the outlier because, because I think I'm just fascinated by the fact that we walk by it over and over again, and it it is so upsetting. Like it's just it's a really upsetting <laughs> joy. So it's not just the tar pits; it's how the tar pits were made, sort of iconic, that I think is interesting. And it was just really fun to spend time with that. Like I said, like
0: I appreciate. And you it have the uncle. and you have the uncle too,
3: right? Right, the uncle's across, accompanying. Uncle.
4: Right, exactly. the woolly
3: the woolly mammoth uncle we're talking about, not yeah. not a
4: not a, like,
3: not a human uncle.
4: Across the He's giant, way over there. and it's all fenced, of course, because it has to be, because people can't go in there. And if we unfenced it, people would, and it would be,
3: oh, and they would die. They would get stuck in the tar, they and they would die. scream, and then their friends would try to come rescue them, and and they would die. And yeah. I'm surprised people don't climb the fence to get over there when they're drunk and um, throw themselves into it. But um, what right. you said about that—it's this weird, eerie, creepy place in the middle of the city. In the right next to this gigantic boulevard that sees hundreds of thousands of people pass it every day. And it seems to belong to a very different reality than um than the urban the rest of the urban landscape of exactly. LA.
4: And that the same tar gets poured into asphalt to make roads. So it's like you have the road, you just have side by side different eras of um existence on the planet. And I think that's Really wonderful, like i just I really love that about it. I love the weirdness of it, and I love the reminder that we're just a phase of you know whatever is next <laughs> well, i i th-
3: I think you did that really well, and then also looping around the um creator of these gigantic fiberglass sculpt- sculptures, uh having a message for the the daughter and um and also it was so ironic that of course he had a connection to
4: Hollywood. he was a um a, a set a designer for, for hollywood yeah, right yeah which yeah the- i mean it's like if you look on the plaques which then i could go by you know when writing the story and his name was howard ball and he was this he made these fiberglass woolly mammoths and he was yeah like a <laughs> set special effects sort of lived in like in torrance was his studio and so but there was very little about what he was working on and stuff but just and they have a photo of him sort of bringing Wooly Mammoth on this truck bed, you know. F LA, you're it's driving amazing. down the street
3: and here's a Wooly Mammoth, a gigantic, uh, you know, 20-foot Wooly Mammoth cruising past it. you on the freeway.
4: And just yeah. imagine, like when he pitched it to be like, well, I'm going to have four and one's across the lake and one's here and then this one, they're all helpless. Like, it just feels like, <laughs> how, did that, how did that pass the meeting? And they were like, that sounds great, Howard. You know, the horror, the horror. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah, LA is just this this crazy place with with many layers of reality and unreality. And Alex, you decided to go with like a 21st century myth or like changeling uh, the story the 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 ancient kind of changeling myth. Um tell us what inspired you to choose that topic and set it in the um the present the way you did.
0: Um, well, you know, first of all, thank, thank you, Denise. And, and, um, it's wonderful to be here with you, Amy. Um, I've, you know, Amy, I've known you for many years and I've always been a big fan of your work. And, you know, I never thought that I would be in an anthology with you. So it's really cool. And (laughs) I also want to thank, um, Johnny Temple and Akashic Books for, um, their, um, you know their creativity and their their bold sort of vision, and and not just this series, but the noir series. Um, and, yeah. and it's really great to be in this company. I'm I'm really touched by it and thrilled. Um, I I you know the funny thing is is like I, you know, I, I think Amy you said the the title speculative is kind of a broad you know a a a broad title, and it and it is, and I never thought about that. And I I, I you know, I um. I don't know, you know, I've always sort of dabbled in that sort of area, right? And have always been fascinated and some of my favorite writers are, you know, writers who, who sort of bend reality, right? Who sort of do these amazing things. Um, so it's always something that sort of t- had tugged at me. Mm-hmm. Um, I um, moved back to LA after spending over a decade in the Central Valley in Fresno and um came back to LA and you know bought a house here in El Sereno and started a new job and the LA that i remembered as a kid had totally changed right it had become something completely different and uh i was fascinated by that i was fascinated by the fact that i was living in a neighborhood that once upon a time you know um was not considered a very safe neighborhood like you don't go to El Sereno and, and and suddenly there i was and um i um I was listening to a lot of lore, a lot of that podcast, you know, the sort of the Aaron Mankey's lore, and he would talk about changelings, and, you know, all these spinning, all these myths. So I spent a lot of time just listening to podcasts. And then um, when we started talking, I thought, well, you know, I was listening to and watching all of these news reports of these caravans of migrants, um, you know, coming, and this was at the height of the, of the, um, the previous administration, the previous administration, which shall not be named. Um, you know, and they're, they're very harsh take, right. And there were stories about um, parents being being reunited with their kids and the kids, you know, acting differently, or exhibiting symptoms or, um, you know, just not being themselves. And, and I just started sort of, you know, sort of meditating on the idea of like, what, what that separation at that time would do to a child, you know, how scarred they would be. Um, And that's kind of what I went with, you know, so I sort of had all these pieces and I thought, well, let me, you know, let me sort of write something about, you know, a woman who is convinced that her child after, you know, they, they meet up again is, is not the same. Um, And so that's kind of how it, how it started. And I sort of wanted to explore that, I think that bond between a mother um, and her child and, and, and the way in which a mother knows, you know, their kids knows their children, no matter what um and that's kind of how the story evolved that's how it sort of happened it, it was so
3: haunting and I've talked to people who said I cried as I read that story I cried all the way through because yeah it's like a mother a mother knows her own child doesn't she mm-hmm. doesn't she or does she right or does right. she and um you know the the theater of cruelty the the separation of a toddler who can barely speak in any language from the only parent, you know, from 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 their 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 mother, um, there's just nothing more awful and hideous. And we don't know how long the child has been separated, but the child has been in detention in some kind of a camp or facility, and now the child is returned to the mom, and the child is withdrawn barely speaks, has no low affect, all things that one might expect from a traumatized uh, child or, you know, uh, at the very worst, a a child who's been abused and neglected. Um, And so you managed to do this incredible hat trick of taking this very ancient idea of the changeling and throwing it into the headlines, but I, I, I guess I felt some of your, um, I felt like bubbling underneath the surface was like your own cry of pain and your howl of, <laughs> of, 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 like, this is wrong. This is cruel. This is what happens. We can't have a society like this. This is, and it was, you know, I thought it was even more powerful that it was, um, y- you made it, like dystopia sci-fi than if it had been real because we've been reading all the real stories in the newspaper that are so awful but you transmuted it somehow and turned it into something that was completely different that like Mm -hmm. transcended the the headlines i
0: think that's what i think that's what i like so much about the the genre of speculative or science fiction is the way in which it sort of allows and, and amy you know i mean you've written this, you've written this a lot. We have a lot more experience in this sort of genre than I do. So correct me if I'm wrong, but the way in which it sort of allows an opportunity for, for writers to sort of almost like hyperemphasize some of the issues that are prevalent that we're dealing with right now, like Octavia Butler did that, you know, in Parable of the Sower. And in like just the ways in which, you know, writers are able to sort of um, uh, take something that's happening and, and just really, um, exaggerated to the nth degree right um i think by taking it and making it um sort of giving it a science fiction bend or a speculative bend i think you can say bigger truths about it than than if it were something that were you know legitimate straight up literary like like realist fiction or whatever so i think that that's i think that's what was sort of so appealing to me about it was
1: you know the idea
0: again of like this you know these like the thought of like who who are these people when we meet up with them again right i remember my mother saying that when um my father you know was working in in here in the us back in the 60s he was undocumented he was working in a lot of the factories in chicago and you know my father picked up really bad habits when he was here because he was away from his family he started drinking a lot and you know and so, by the time my mother met up with him, my mother said like he was a different man, like he was a different man than the man that that left, and that always sort of stuck with me you know mm-hmm. and and I thought, damn, like the things that sort of families have to go through in order to sort of you know um just provide um you know for themselves so that they live and and but what that sort of that rupture creates right it creates these these um I think these um, issues and scars that uh, ripple over time, right? In the same way that, you know, the tar does and the bubbling and, you know, these, these echoes that sort of, you know, get traced throughout and, and suddenly have past and present sort of existing right next to each other in very strange and incongruous ways, right? So, Do
4: you yeah. think
3: LA, do, 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 do either of you, do you think LA lends itself to speculative fiction more than other cities? Hollywood and, you know, the edge of the continent and so many different cultures with their own mythologies.
0: What do you think, Amy? I
4: mean, well, I, I wanted to just say, I'll one second.
3: you can say something completely different. Amy. Okay. I just, just... <laughs> wanted to
4: respond to something that Alex was saying that I thought was so powerful in his story is it's, there's like a little nod to the, and like you were saying, Denise, with the theater of the, the journalist sort of being like, here's the reunion. And, and this moment like that, I certainly watched, you know, the clips of the kids being reunited with their parents and being both horrified and moved. And I think it's just, it's such a meaningful leap in terms of what fiction can do. If it's not an investigative journalistic piece, then to allow that time to be with the mother's point of view and feel like what happens next when everybody leaves and this trauma has happened and you have the core players together. And I just felt glad for you to take that time with that. It just felt, you know, painful and helpful to think about it with you in the story, you know, like it just I thought that was really, and then to have that move towards the speculative sort of deepens our sense of her emotional alienation too, you know, and the child's. So I just thought it worked really well. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it was really, it was really powerful to read. And um And yeah, I mean, I would say L.A., I mean, it's hard to know because, of course, like L.A. is the city I know best. But it also like the thing I've always thought about L.A. is that it's there's just a lot of daydreaming space because when, you know, when we are driving more, (laughs) there's a lot of car time. I've been driving very little this year, but like it just feels like part of the part of the isolation of L.A. also allows for a certain amount of that kind of speculative room to just make stuff up. Um, there's finding people takes a little more effort than what I imagine, you know, in New York, you're just sort of bumping into people. So it has a kind of, there, there's a more sort of head on person to person contact. And And in that way, I feel like LA and it's weirdness and it's, you know, every street has seven different architecture types like that sort of LA spirit is very, is also playful and eerie both. So I think, I think it does lend itself to, to space outside of, whatever one might call realism. Mm.
0: And I think, you know, just to sort of pick up on that, um, you mentioned all the different architectures, Amy, and the, the first thing I thought about was one of my favorite novels. It's a Day of the Locust by Daniel exactly. West, you know, when he's describing all the different sort of you totally. know, the houses with moats and then one that looks like a Polynesian hut and <laughs> um and the sort of the 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 sort of collision of all of these different histories. Um, you know, and I think, you know, like people like Mike Davis have written about like how, you know, LA basically shouldn't be right. Like it's like, it's a landscape that sort of is artificially constructed and created. Um, and then you have the, you know, the tectonic plates bumping up against each other and you have all of this, this fissure and things bubbling up and cracking and breaking. Um, you know, I think it, I think in a lot of ways it does lend itself. I mean, we're on the, you know, the, the Pacific rim, we're on the, the ring of fire, right. Um, we, you know, we exist in an environment that is, um, incredibly volatile and, and always changing, um, always shifting and morphing into something, something else. And I think that that unsteadiness, I think creates a sort of you know, a cauldron. I think of of these these kinds of ways of thinking. It's it's very sort of, you know, punk rock. You know, as we say in Mexico, punk rock, right? It's just very. It's it's this. You know, I've traveled to Mexico City, and there's a lot of Mexico City that reminds me of LA. You know, we're very mm-hmm. sort of steeped in that 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 pre-Columbian myth, and I think you mm-hmm. know, in, in a lot of ways, that uh, other parts of this country aren't right. Mm-hmm. They're a lot more sort of Eurocentric. Mm -hmm. But we have a lot of new world, um, Mm -hmm. you know, we have like jaguars and Aztec gods and coyotes coming down, you know, the, the canyons and, you know, I go, I've been going on a lot of walks and yeah, like my neighborhood, like I'm getting to know my neighborhood differently because of, you know, because of the pandemic and I'm not driving as much. And suddenly I'm encountering like, encountering like coyotes, like they come out, they look at me and, and there's something almost, dare I say, like. Magical about that, right? Something yeah. weird, like this moment when you realize like I am not the only person occupying the space. I'm not the only living thing or organism that's sort of existing here. There's some wildlife here that's existed long before I have, and they're going to be here long after I am. Right. so I think you only see that in l a and, and you know, one of the things I love about our city is that, it, it isn't until you live here and if you're, if you're from here that you understand it, right? Like I've had conversations with people, they're like, ah, LA, ah, ah. you know, it's they, just a visceral reaction. And I just think one, that's stupid. And two, like, you know, it, it's, it's, it's kind of a badge of honor that we live here. Like I, I see it as like a, like, it's like, yeah, it's my, it's my shit. Like I live, I live in LA, I can survive it. And, you know, I think those of us that come here are, are, are cut from a very um, unique cloth. Um, and and I think that's what makes it so wonderful to write, you know, speculative or, or, or otherwise.
3: I right, see. That's that's why I had you write a story for me because because <laughs> of all
4: that. Oh, so great! But it's <laughs> it's like you said, Denise. Though too that it's surprising it hasn't existed before, and it seems yeah. like such a natural fit. So it
3: a collection like this, yeah.
4: Um, there we could
3: also do mm. like a, a classic speculative fiction cuz there's a lot of classic um sci-fi and fantasy writers who did live here like um you know Octavia Butler and um Brad, uh, Brad of Brad course Hickory. yeah and um Harlan Ellison who, yeah who wrote wonderfully uh not always about LA but uh and um Steve of Hickory. course um Blade Runner type mm-hmm. stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, um, are there any questions? We have uh, we have people here. Is there anyone who'd like to ask a question? If so, you could type it into the ask a question button. We'd be happy to answer it. If you have questions about the writing process for any of us, inspiration. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Nice. No questions that. yet.
4: Okay. Did you like how did you, will you just talk a little bit about how you made that leap into thinking about speculative for Los Angeles? Just a little more. Oh,
3: you know, I, I see LA as completely magical and unreal. And I just feel that I drift. Between what's real and and what I'm imagining and what I see and what I think I see, and sometimes I think I see crazy, weird, magical stuff, and then I look again, and it's just like some weird truck with the with the flatbed up or something, and I thought it was some kind of crazy creature, or I see what looks like, or I hear, you know, I've been hiking and I hear what what seem what sound like mountain lions growling at me, and I'm way up on the, you know, like in Calabasas or somewhere or up in the Verdugo's. So for me, it's just like. Uh, you know my daily life is filled with you know kind of surreal and um apocalyptic stuff I, I also think that being in la we live at the edge of the uh we live inside an, an apocalypse i mean if there's no water here right we're, we're immediately bam into dystopia within three weeks if the california aqueduct uh collapses and have you ever been down to long beach no san pedro and seen the uh where the earthquake, um, hit. And there's those like sidewalks and um, pieces of houses that are like dangling halfway down the cliff. Oh, oh, you guys got to go there. Point Furman. Point Furman in San San Pedro. And uh, it's like, you know, it's like the crumbling cliffs and uh, the earthquake of 1931. I guess the, I don't know if Long Beach was the epicenter or what, but I, you know, you drive by and you see like, um, you know, buildings that have been torn down and just decay, um, you know, and then you see things built back up again. I think the tar pits certainly are something that seemed very surreal to me. Um, Places that seem like, I don't know, portals into a different LA. Um, And, you know, I, I love the mix of all the, the cultures too, and how the different myths from, you know, El Salvador and Myanmar and you know Ukraine kind of come here and coalesce and re reimagine themselves and we're all kind of swimming in in all of this and and I love that um, so uh this uh, did you guys want to talk any more about your stories or did you want to read a few paragraphs or
0: I just I, want to say that I, I yeah before you read Amy, I just wanted to say that i I um the the thought of the image of the of the the mammoth family, like how incredibly painful that is. Like I, I was I was I was reading your story and I found myself getting emotional over some fiberglass woolly mammoths. Like like that's you know, just the, the poignancy of it and, and the way in which I think um that location sort of captures a moment in, in time, almost like, you know, capturing it in Amber, right, is, is, um, I never thought of it that way. So, so, you know, I, I love that, that there are stories in this anthology that sort of force me and make me look at the city in different ways that, you know, I never imagined. So I thought that was really powerful.
4: Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad. Thank you.
0: Now you have to read.
4: All right, I'll read that exact part. I'm just going to read like one page, but just that sort of establishes this part. It's a father and a daughter, but for those who have not seen this place, it's a real tar pit from the beginning of time, or at least 55,000 years back. And this particular lake is left over from asphalt mining of the late 1800s used to patch roofs and roads. The very roads cars were driving by on every day, maybe even Wilshire itself, right next to this exhibit. You can see bubbling tar in it on a daily basis from an underground oil field. No one is allowed in. Inside the pit is the statue of what Anna and I had gleaned to be the mother mammoth, halfway submerged in the tar, and she is trumpeting in terror, her tusks huge and useless. To the side on the banks are the small child mammoth and the larger father mammoth, but they're just watching at the edge. They can't possibly rescue her. The tar has a thick and deadly pull and once in a creature cannot get out, which is one reason why there are so many fossils. Far across the tar lake, there's another adult mammoth also trumpeting and Anna and I call that one uncle. Anyway, due to her own circumstances, Anna seemed to understand earlier than other children or even other adults, how it was tragic. How was an image of such terrible helplessness and loss? that I often wondered how the sculptor had convinced the Tarpit Art Association or the museum board or whoever had it put up there 50 years ago to include it as the central image of the park. Had they realized what they were paying for? There's a photo of him on one of the plaques, Howard Ball, the artist himself, driving the first giant 13-foot-tall fiberglass beast through the streets of L.A. on a flatbed attached to his VW Beetle. There's no hint of who's coming next and what the mammoth will be seeing for the rest of his sculptural life. Ball was a Hollywood special effects designer. I can't find much more about him. I've definitely looked at Anna's urging. So can I cover some of what we talked about too in the form of the story. Alex,
0: are you gonna read a little bit? Sure, I'll read a section. On Let's see, um, this is a section this is where um um Mercedes, who's the mother in my um story, and her son have been reunited, and um she's again, she's convinced that he's not right, he's been acting very strangely, and um she goes to do a little research and then she talks a little bit about the uh, myth of the duende, which is like um a changeling in in her culture. We walked to the library up on Huntington Boulevard and there we gathered a stack of picture books. And I asked Ariel to sit by me and look at them as I turned the computer on. I didn't know exactly what I was looking for, but there had to be something to explain all these odd things. It took a while, but slowly, certain similarities began emerging. A mother in Texas reported that her daughter had grown very depressed and moody Ever since she'd been returned to her. The girl refused to go outside and spent all day in her bedroom, the curtains drawn. She turned very pale and her hair started to fall out in clumps. Another woman reported that her son had become increasingly violent, harming himself and others. He had beaten up a classmate and pushed him down a flight of stairs. Another mother from Arizona was so sure her daughter had been replaced by a robot that she began cutting the little girl's arms and legs to see if she bled. The little girl nearly died before the mother was arrested and her daughter placed in a foster home. All of these children had been separated from their parents after crossing the border, just like me and Ariel. None of it made sense. I watched him flipping through a book of dinosaurs. He was so unfamiliar to me now, so distant and far away. And no matter what I did, I couldn't break through to him. I remember my mother and grandmother telling the stories about Buendas small creatures that live in the forests and caves around the village. They'd roam the countryside at night and steal laundry and food, vandalize the barns, and rouse the chickens and roosters. I saw one once, my grandmother told me, when I was a girl. It was a little thing. It looked like a child scurrying a few feet ahead of me as I was coming back from the Rio one evening. In the moonlight, I could see that it walked funny, and as I approached, it turned to look at me. Its eyes glowed bright green, and when it grinned, I saw a set of sharp yellow teeth. It had long fingernails, and its skin was covered in hair. The truly sinister ones, though, did more things. They did awful things, they told me. They butchered animals for food. They skinned their hides to wear. They disguised themselves and walked into houses, caused mischief. Some even reportedly lit a woman's house on fire as she slept. They'd steal babies and children, replacing them with lookalikes in order to trick the parents and cause more mischief. And when I asked why they did this, my grandmother sighed and shook her head. They're just bad, my mother replied. They only do it because they're evil. There's no other reason. They're bitter and foul things with hate in in their soul. Maybe politicians are duendes disguised as people. I don't know who this child is, but he is not mine. I'm not crazy. Even after all I've been through, I've remained fully intact and fully aware of myself. I am of sound mind, as the Americans say. I look at this boy now, this mysterious life next to me sleeping, and he is not mine. Thank you. Wow,
3: so powerful. It really is. So powerful. Well, um, Yeah. Yeah. Really I I think both of you managed to like walk this razor's edge where you write beautifully and poetically about um reality in real life and yet there's you guys are writing on two different levels. You know, there's the reality and and then there's the the flip side, the unreality like like you just mentioned Alex your that that whole passage you read. And um and Amy you too, you're. And the little girl seems to to totally process that alternate reality without questioning it at all. Um, but I think that both of you wrote these amazing stories that um, managed to conjure up this whole alternate Los Angeles and these characters that are very moving. And um, the sto- the stories are speculative and yet they're also grounded in reality and I think they say that with science fiction um, that people are writing stories that uh, reflect today's concerns, Um, even though they could be, you know, set on Mars, you know, 2 million years into the future. (laughs) And, (laughs) um, and I think, you know, both of you, both of you wrote about children, troubled children, Mm -hmm. children in trouble.
0: Mm -hmm. And you know, what's funny is, 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 um, a- amy's is a father and mine is a mother
4: i know i thought of that too
0: <laughs> we're like swapped like, but, uh, you want to
3: make you want to mix it up a
4: little exactly yeah. so. i think we did get a question
2: all okay. right there is a question yes it's from me do you mind if i ask it Oh yeah. <laughs> so this is for everybody and i'm kind of a i'm a somewhat recent angelina so i love to collect these recommendations from people but the first part is what do you think is the most magical or transportive place in Los Angeles, and the second part is what place do you think is the most haunted, the spookiest, the most cursed?
0: Ooh, I think I, I think I I I have some. Good go. No. Okay, I, okay. So the first part is I, I would have to say that for me the most magical or transportive place in LA is um, it would have to be Olvera Street. Nice. Only because it was sort of artificially created, right? By this this woman who was like a booster for the city and she wanted to do something like for the Mexican population. So it's like this art, totally, completely artificially created um, uh, tourist destination that then has become like a, a sort of attraction, right? Which is, it's very strange. Like there's actually like old adobe houses there, mm-hmm. but then you can get like, you know, uh, velvet paintings of Jesus and like maracas and all kinds of crazy stuff so Olvera Street for me is the most transformative it's like me- it's like Los Angeles's version of of Mexico which I I totally right. dig like I think it's it's this very strange inverted version like I know like when I was a kid I remember knowing like this isn't actually Mexico it's LA's version of Mexico but I love it anyway so well, so I love that about it right like well, it's, it's trans- weird it,
3: because it it started out as as artifice and then yeah, it, completely. It, it became animate life. It became right. more
0: than artifice. It changed. Yeah, it's it's kind of like what's happening, and you're seeing like that same thing happen with like the Grove, right? Which like emulates a downtown. Like it emulates a it like streets, and and then it sort of just becomes its own thing, which is fascinating. It just sort of grafts on. Um, and I think the haunted and most spookiest place, and this is only because this is in my head because I've been watching it, is. And i I'm fascinated with is um the Cecil Hotel in downtown. Oh yeah. LA.
3: That's a little a portal docu- to hell.
0: Yeah, that documentary on on Netflix right now is really fascinating and disturbing. Um ah. so I'd have to say that the most haunted and spookiest or cursed place for me in LA is the Cecil. What about you, Amy? Well, I think
4: what was coming to mind
2: when we
3: were talking about is, uh, Are are we hearing uh, Amy?
2: Kind of. Yeah, I'm I'm hearing Amy's Amy's audio is breaking up. Your chat. I think now. Yeah, I think her Wi-Fi has gone out.
4: And I'll just say I agree with you. You Oh, there she is.
2: Is it okay?
4: Is it better? I don't know what happened. Yeah, Yeah, I can can hear you. Okay. Okay. It's a moment. Um, that I've talked. Um, I think in terms of magical. That one of my favorite places is remains the Museum of Jurassic Technology, and I think what we oh, on Venice Boulevard and put together by visual artist David Wilson, and um, and it's very interesting because it's very it's a lot of what we're talking about with the speculative world is that there's a book about it, which is a good book, Mr. Wilson's Cabinet of Wonders by Lawrence Weschler, but the book really leans heavy on this idea of what's real in the museum and what's not real, and so I think. There's a weird pressure to go in there and be like, is this bat made up or is this bat real? You know, is this Russian dog, did this Russian dog really go to outer space or did it not go outer space? But I think it's the wrong entry point because I think it's about going into a space where you're sort of in someone's imagination and you're sort of in someone's factual um, knowledge. And there's a room in there of um, like airstream trail and tra- it's like a trailer parks throughout I think the west coast or maybe it's throughout the whole country it's just one of the most peaceful places in the city it's a little dark and there's just these pinpoints of light and then there're these little dioramas of, of trailers and little um little trailer parks and they're just with trees and little lights on the trees I just love it I can't go right now but I miss it <laughs>
0: <laughs> to
4: <just laughs> visit that room and um, in terms of spooky places well, now I, I don't know the documentary you're talking about, Alex, but I recently went to the old zoo, which I think is actually fascinating, spooky. It's sort of cool, spooky, but it was disturbing somehow. Like the old zoo in Griffith Park, where you can go and like wander around the tiny cages and you can sort of climb in them. It's kind of disturbing and fun.
3: <laughs> For me, the, um, the most magical place is this the, the last existing Tongva. Sacred Spring in L.A., which is in West L.A., which is actually on the campus of um, University High School right off Barrington. Mm. Have you guys ever been there? Mm-mm. No, it's it's rarely open. It used to be open every Sat, every first Saturday of the month. But you can like you can like Google it, Gabrielinho uh, Sacred Springs. And um, first of all, from the street, it just looks like, um, you know, an empty field with like weird storage spaces on it. But when you when you go through the door, the gates, you go further and further in, and it gets lush and filled with reeds, and you can hear bubbling water that's actually coming up from the ground. And there's wow. this ancient cypress tree that was supposedly planted by the Spanish when they were coming up, wow. um, so that it would give shade. And it was, of course, next to next to the uh, springs. And there was a village there at one point. And of course, mm-hmm. sadly, all that is no more uh but you can sit there and you know the the sound of traffic recedes and you're surrounded by greenery and d- the bubbling of water and it's very trans transportive you just feel that you could imagine what it was like 250 years ago and that haunts me quite a bit all these places in LA um that that were uh native american villages that are you know just no longer and even you know the indians uh, who from the areas were at one point and still somewhat known as like the gabrieleno indians mm-hmm. or the, and it was like so sad to me that it's like wait but what was their name not the name the spanish padres gave them you know and so i just i feel that those ghosts everywhere in la mm-hmm. um, not not in I, a bad way but
0: yeah I think that's what's so great though. And 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 again, going back to Amy's story is this idea of like like there are these like pockets, these these dare we say portals, right? You know, of yeah. where we're almost like where that are suspended in time, right? Where you can step in and, and out and suddenly you're in a different era, right? Um, you know, that I think our landscape is not tied to a specific um time, right? Mm-hmm. It's all sort of it's all sort of past and present, you know, here, now, then, there, like it's all sort of blended together. Like we were, you know, I live, I'm here in El Serino, and the street that my house is off of is the old Camino Real, right? Where the monks, oh. you know, the Spaniards would, would and, and my neighborhood predates the founding of the city of LA. And the other day, my partner Kyle and I were driving and, you know, and I told him like, isn't it odd that we live this close to a mission? like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to yeah. these old yeah. buildings, like right next to, you know, a target, like, it's just the weirdest thing. And the minute you sort of park and get out and go through those Adobe walls, it's exactly what it was like. Mm. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. I mean, some parts of it are probably reconstructed, but for the most part, it's pretty much the the way it's been. And, and, and you know, there are these pockets and places in LA where you drive down one street and you're surrounded by trees and foliage and canyons and it doesn't feel like you're in the middle of a city. So it has that way of um, like disrupting your sort of sense of of yeah. place and location. Like right. I get lost all the time. Like I get totally lost when I'm, you know, I have a bad sense of direction, but I get totally lost. And, and I, I love that about our city is that I turn left and right and then I'm in a location or a pocket that I never knew was there. And you'll you know, never find again because will never find again. It's like it is like it's way. like C. S. Lewis. Yeah, it's like the Lion the Witch in the Wardrobe, right? right? It's right. like kind of yeah. into this, like <laughs> and and then suddenly you're like, wow, I I never knew it. like I can't tell you how I sound like a broken record. I can't tell you how many times I've come home and I've told Kyle like, Wow, I never knew that, you know, X was there. I never knew that, you know, this mm-hmm. one street where you turn and you go up you go up a street and you pass the the this and you know you're in this little hill in this other neighborhood. Like it's it's crazy and I love it.
3: Well, that seems like a good way to close our <laughs> chat yeah. here. And because yeah. the, you've just summed up Speculative LA and all the stories in it. And I think, um, you know, what we were all trying to achieve in one way or another with, with our stories, just kind of trying to grasp at at these
0: ghostly straws and pull them into yeah. words and
3: sentences. And,
0: and now, you, now you've both inspired me to write more. You, you, and, 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 Denise and Amy and everybody at Akashic inspired me now to maybe write more, write more speculative oh, science great. fiction. Who knows? <laughs> who knows? All of, yeah.
3: All righty. Well, thank you so much to Skylight for hosting us. And thank you to everyone who um, who showed up. It's amazing here, virtual Skylight.
2: Yes, so, yes. Thank, thank you guys you so everybody. much. And thank you to the <laughs> thank
3: panelists. You. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Denise. Maddie. And Maddie.
2: Thank you all so much. This was really fun. And uh, I now have a great list of places to visit when the pandemic is over or maybe before. Some of these are outdoors, right? Right. Um, when yeah. I first moved here, somebody told me Los Angeles is a city of a thousand locked doors and the longer you stay here, the more of them will open, um, which I felt like is really fitting for specula- thinking about LA as a speculative city. Um, it, really, it really does feel like the way you guys are all talking, there, there are all these beautiful secret places um, and, and it's, it's been a great reminder that we can go out and find these places. So thank you all for sharing those with me today yay thank you <laughs> alright right, everybody well take care out there click that green button and uh, hopefully we'll right. catch you all on the flip side
1: alright all right. bye now bye. Good night, bye everybody bye the book Good night. Bye, thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.